Coming up... Induction, deduction, reduction, abduction. Is the simplest explanation always the best? The day I met you, there was a white substance on your shoe that I mistook for plaster. Yesterday, I saw the same white substance outside the hut where the bat was kept, and suddenly it hit me. The great white bat has great white guano. That's what you slipped in, that's what was on your shoe, and that explains the abrasion on your palm! When there are many different ways to explain the same event, how do we decide which is best? Isn't the most elegant explanation always the best? You have a hand inside of you. That explains so many things. Why think elegance is a guide to truth? That will explain these costumes. Quite right, number one. Isn't the best explanation always the one that explains more with less? What you writing, Slats? Um, my thoughts. That would explain all the blank pages. Explanation at its best. Lovely explanation you've got there. Be a shame if it turned out to be bogus. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What makes an explanation a good explanation? Isn't the simplest explanation always the best? Why do people often swallow such crazy explanations? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence, I'm Ken Taylor. And I'm Josh Landy. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where I teach philosophy, and Josh directs the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're thinking about explanation at its best. Oh, so Josh, suppose you have like two competing explanations of the same thing. How, how, how do you think we should go about deciding between them? I'll start with a simpler one. I mean, that one's going to be more likely to be true, right? Well, maybe, but sometimes a simple explanation can be too simple, can't it? Yeah, okay, look, we shouldn't make explanations so simple that it can't account for the facts. But, you know, let's not make it more complicated than we have to. Yeah, but then that raises the question of how we strike a balance between too simple on one hand and too complex on the other. Yeah, there aren't any hard and fast rules. It's it's more a case-by-case kind of thing. So you mean you kind of know it when you see it, kind of like pornography or something? Something like that. I mean, not exactly like that. It's true. True that there isn't an algorithm for it, but there is a name for it. It's called abductive inference. Ah, no, that's a mouthful. I bet you most people are familiar with the notion of induction and probably deduction, but abduction? Well, it's also called inference to the best explanation, if that helps. Oh, actually, I don't think that helps at all. <laughs> How about you give an example instead? Sure, okay. Suppose you're a detective investigating the murder of Jimmy Socrates, okay? <laughs> you've got you've got two main suspects, uh, Freddie Nietzsche and Tommy Hobbs. Okay, I'm with you so far. Excellent. Here's the case against Nietzsche. He and Socrates were spotted having a heated argument shortly before Socrates' death, and the police found the murder weapon in the bushes in Nietzsche's backyard. Wow, that case sounds pretty damning. So, okay, what's uh, Tommy Hobbs' story? Okay, Tommy Hobbs hated Socrates, too, and that night an eyewitness saw a man matching Hobbes' description running from the scene of the crime. Uh, so maybe Hobbes is our man, eyewitness testimony, you know? Not so fast, Ken. Only an hour after the murder, Hobbes was spotted in a restaurant a hundred miles away having a quiet, intimate dinner with his partner. Oh, Josh, okay. Well, this is an interesting case. It seems to me we got ourselves in something of a pickle. We've got inconclusive evidence that supports two different hypotheses. Uh, it seems to me the only way we're going to possibly decide between them, we've got to dig for more evidence. We've got to go do some detecting. I don't agree. I think we've got enough evidence already. I, I mean, surely it's clear that Nietzsche did it. What? Okay. How? Well, uh, if he didn't do it, how did the gun get into his yard? And, and how did Hobbes get so far away so fast? 
Secant abduction's cool. It helps us find the best explanation without a lot of messing about. Oh, gosh, yes. Look, I, I'm willing to concede that that may be the simplest explanation, but I don't know why you think that's the best explanation. Well, you got a better idea? Well, yeah, yeah, try this one out. I mean, okay, Tommy Hobbs, he's really he's a really devious guy. He's like framing Nietzsche. Uh, knowing that they would come to blows, he arranged for Nietzsche and Socrates to meet where he knew they would be seen. And then after they part company, Hobbs murders Socrates and then plants the gun in his backyard. What do you think about that? I think you're missing out a really important detail. No, which, what would that be? Which, that's the fact that there's an intimate dinner a hundred oh, oh, miles oh, oh, away. Oh, oh, one hour right, after the Oh, right, right, right. I know, I know. Look, 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 look. Hobbs is uh, his uh, his helicopter was parked in a nearby heliport. He kills Socrates, gets into the chopper, drops the gun as he flies over the yard, lands the chopper a hundred miles away, where a driver is waiting to take him to his dinner date. Touche, a better explanation. What are you smoking, Ken? I'm not smoking anything, and how can you resist? Have you even bothered to check out heliports in the area for suspicious takeoffs and landings, Josh? No, and I don't intend to either. Well, well, then how can you be so confident that you know what the best explanation is? I mean, you're not even willing to consider every logically possible explanation. That's like choosing your presidential candidate without hearing the other 22 who are in the debate. <sighs> you know, th that, Ken, that's the beauty of abductive inference. You don't have to drive yourself crazy searching for evidence to rule out every conceivable alternative. You know, if, a, if an alternative is ad hoc or, or too complicated, helicopters, or, or it's inconsistent with what we already know, we can just ignore it. Uh, but how do you know, Josh? Here's the crucial thing. How do you know which alternatives are worth taking seriously and which aren't, Mr. Sherlock? Well, that's a long story. Well, you know why? Because your abductive inference, your inference to the best explanation, it's just hocus pocus. No, it's just it, magic. No, 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 no. It's something that people do all the time and that they're remarkably good at. And, and not just scientists, regular folk like you and me, even babies do it, Ken. Okay, Josh, look, I'm not completely convinced. I'm willing to listen and learn and to help us get a better sense of how inference to the best explanation is supposed to work. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to investigate how one of the world's most famous detective uses it to get to the bottom of things. She files this report. A dense yellow fog swirls through the streets of London. It is here we find our hero, Sherlock Holmes, sitting in a cocaine-induced haze at 221B Baker Street. I can strongly recommend a 7% solution of cocaine. Would you care to try it? Holmes is engulfed by melancholy. He yearns for mysteries to solve. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I'm in my proper atmosphere. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle created Sherlock Holmes back in 1887. Conan Doyle was a scientist and a trained physician, and his fictional detective used scientific methods and forensic evidence before the actual police did. Holmes says simple explanations are sometimes the correct ones. Every problem is absurdly simple when it is explained to you. Bum, 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 bum. But just as often, the unlikely explanations can be correct. How often have I said to you, once you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Holmes relies on deductive, inductive, and abductive reasoning to solve crimes. 
deductive reasoning begins with a broad truth, then a minor premise, and finally a conclusion. Certainly there are instances where basically a case is solved by pretty straightforward sort of, if this, then that must be true. Phil Talon is the co-editor of The Philosophy of Sherlock Holmes. He says one example of this is in the Holmes story, The Adventures of the Three Students. In this story, a cheater is afoot and has copied answers to an exam. The cheater must have been tall enough to look in through the window to see that the exam papers were there. Only one of the three students is tall enough, and so therefore, uh, this tall student must be the one who did the cheating. With inductive reasoning, Holmes makes an observation, then reaches a conclusion. For example, he can identify 140 different types of cigar based on ash. So he studies pipe ashes and observes that, okay, when something looks like this, then it must have come from here. Um, he kind of moves, as it were, from the particular back to the general. So he can examine cigarette ash at a crime scene and use his insight into ash to make a guess about how suspects died or who killed who. But there's more to Holmes' method than brains. Tim Weldon is a professor of philosophy and theology at the University of St. Francis. What won it for him was really this appeal to the heart, or these summary evaluative judgments that stem from intuition. Holmes uses abductive reasoning in The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. That kind of reasoning involves an incomplete observation, then a prediction. So it means more intuition is at play. For example, one day around Christmas, Holmes examines a dusty hat. He guesses it must belong to an intellectual fellow because of the cubic capacity of the hat. Then he guesses the wearer of the hat has lost his wife's affection. So, what do we have? A gray-haired intellectual who three years ago was well-to-do but has since fallen on hard times. He once had foresight, he now has less. His wife has ceased to love him and it is doubtful if he has gas laid on in his house. When Holmes does identify the thief, he relies on his intuition again. He concludes turning him over to the police would only turn him into a hardened criminal. Holmes thought it was the time of year and the disposition of the thief that warranted some kind of letting go or exoneration. You usually don't see that in any kind of detective fiction. That moment may seem compassionate, but Holmes is operating purely out of rational judgment. As he would say to his only friend Watson, I am brain, the rest is mere appendix. You won't find emotion from Sherlock Holmes, but he still has a lot to teach us. Elementary, my dear Watson. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.